Sims, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Tobias Zombregel about his recent book, Political Power and Environmental Sustainability in Gulf Monarchies, uh, which is pretty timely, uh, coming right in the wake of COP27 in Egypt. Then we talk to Nermeen Alam of Rutgers University about her research on women's participation in the Egyptian uprising and the afterlives of that protest. Finally, we talk to Stefan Hertog, who is one of the authors, along with uh, Ferdinand Eibel and Shema Hattab, of chapter six in our book, The Political Science of the Middle East, uh, Political Economy and Development. Uh, thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. On this week's book segment, we're joined by Tobias Zomregel of the University of Hamburg in Carpo, and he's the author of a new book, Political Power and Environmental Sustainability in Gulf Monarchies, just published by Paul Grave. Uh, Tobias, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Mark. It's my absolute pleasure to be here. Well, and especially coming just back from the COP27, this is a really timely uh, book, and I'm excited to have a chance to talk about it. Tell us a little bit about how uh, you wrote this book and uh, what you were trying to accomplish with it. Yeah, um, so, I mean, so it, it's actually based on my PhD thesis, so it took me kind of years before to do research, and then I wanted to to have this book on it, so I updated some information and also took a little bit of broader approach. Um, and I was a little bit fascinated by the topic of a green transformation in the oil and gas which Gulf monarchies. Some also label this like this kind of a green revolution, but and much has been also written about it, but rather from a technical or neoliberal economic perspective. And I was particularly interested in the question of how this kind of transition actually affects political power relations and dynamics. So looking to aspects of authority, legitimacy, geopolitics, um, but also things like elite cohesion or state society relations. And what's a little bit bizarre or maybe funny um, that I initially wanted to write a book about environmental politics in the Gulf states, but I ended up to write something about energy politics and policymaking, because this is how um, the Gulf states are actually perceiving this whole kind of climate change and environment degradation thing. And that's it's absolutely fascinating uh, the way you show that this is genuinely an industry rooted within the uh, the political economies of these Gulf monarchies. But before we get to that, uh, let me start uh, maybe just asking you to say a little bit just about the, the environmental crisis itself, uh, the climate change impacts and the magnitude of what's facing the Arabian Peninsula, since that's the obviously the uh, what what brings them to trying to deal with this in the first place. Yeah, so the Gulf monarchies are really facing a huge climate crisis. Um, this relates to to natural hazards, so flash floods, but also more sand and dust storms. We have so this occasional events, but we have also a number of long-term effects like sea level rise, desertification, global warming, a rise in humidity. Um, and there are even some scenarios they are saying that the Gulf monarchies might, or there might be regions in the Arabian Peninsula that might be uninhabitable by the end of this year, uh, by the end of the <laughs> century. So, um, <laughs> So you really see that it's about survival here. It's it's about it's it's a very looming climate crisis. There 
that those states are facing here. And the crisis is in many ways uh, of their own making. Absolutely. I mean, um, those are kind of or what other scholars have already labeled the petrol station of the world. So, um, well, by having the biggest ecological footprint based cost by per capita. So, um, I mean, there are not many people here, but they have in terms of water consumption, electricity consumption, but also the emissions uh, output, they have the biggest ecological and carbon footprint per capita. And this is related to the huge oil and gas industry that is in place there. One of the things you point out is that it's also part of the Rantier bargain, um, that uh, access to cheap energy is something which citizens expect and they abuse. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's one point how power has actually emerged there has been maintained. It's part of a socioeconomic uh, social contract here that this kind of distribution and using this kind of cheap energy and resource abundance has been used for gaining legitimacy, but also ensuring political power here. And uh, here we can also see how all the different aspects are really intersect and how an ecological crisis and an economic model and uh, political power aspirations are interrelated to each other. And yeah, and then the hotter it gets, uh, the more the air conditioners run, and it's just a vicious cycle. Yeah, not only in terms of air conditioning, but there are a lot of different other aspects, mm -hmm. like water consumption, using this greening the desert style, and then you you have uh, you using fresh water in a in a uh, very arid and water scarce region. So you're desalinating a lot of seawater, which is also energy intensive. And to do this, you are burning fossil fuels. So you, you see those contradictions and the dilemmas all the time. So the book then, it, it tracks uh, the emergent shift towards these various kinds of green policies, sustainable development, renewable energy. Um, and you track these across the Gulf. Uh, maybe say a little bit about when this emerges, why it emerges, and what they're actually doing when they, uh, you know, be, when they launch these initiatives. Yeah. Um, so what what might be also interesting in the beginning is, um, and I'm writing one chapter about this kind of environmental history that mm -hmm. that uh, hasn't been really done in in a lot of or in scholarship that uh, people have engaged in environmental history of the Gulf states, there are only a few words, works. Um, and one is uh, this book by Toby Jones, uh, his seminal book on Saudi Arabia, where he coins this term of environmental power. So what is actually interesting is that the Gulf states and not only Saudi Arabia have always used natural resources for the means of sustaining, but also maintaining political power. And this has been done way before the advent of fossil fuels in the Gulf states. They have just accelerated this, this dimension and development. Um, and then we had this, this kind of Dubai model approach, which uh, with a very harmful lifestyle and this kind of ecological overshoot. Um, and over the last 10 to 20 years, those Gulf states and policymakers have realized that this is kind of an unsustainable model. Um, and that it, they have to to react and they have to to change their their previous model um and so they haven't really invented the real new but they have 
fostered or put more attention to, to climate change, environment, environmental degradation. But as I said in the beginning, mostly from an energy and low carbon development. And here, this is what, what could be seen as a not so new paradigm shift, because over the last years, they are really pushing for new technology um, in terms of decarbonization. Um, we are talking here uh, about technology like carbon capture and storage, where they are they are trying to capture the carbon dioxide from those oil and gas industries and trying to, to capture it and to store it and to, to lower the emissions and the, the carbon footprint. But it, so in their perspective, and this was also that has been repeatedly mentioned during the last COP in Egypt, so oil and gas is not the enemy for them. It's the associated emissions, and they want to control them and to 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 lower them, in order to to maintain and continue their business of selling oil and gas. And and the interconnections between the environmental policy and the energy policy is it's really a critical theme that runs through the entire book. Yeah, um, especially when you when when you're looking into into the state capacities, then you see that they have, and actually also for for over decades, some countries like Oman or uh, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, they have built environmental agencies um, during the 70s, 80s. Even Kuwait have been really a front runner here in this case, but they were kind of well rather shadow institutions. And we always have this, the ministries of energy that they have the last say here, and they are controlling the direction and how um, this whole yeah, transformation is actually happening. And, and I guess this kind of goes without saying, but for the most part, this is being done in the absence of civil society and kind of pressure from below. Civil society doesn't play a huge role here. Um, and advocacy on environmental topics um, have been limited. This doesn't mean that they haven't been there. So um, for example, in Kuwait during the 70s, there have been a few signs about environmental engagement and about broader environmental activism. So this happened during the same time where a broader role of environmental activism has actually emerged in Western countries like the US or um, in, in Germany, France. Um, so, so this was actually very early for, for a region that has just invented or has, has mm -hmm. just discovered the, uh, their oil and gas. Uh, they are building their oil and gas industries and they have, well, only in a process of state building. Um, so there, there are early roots of it, but then we also see that those, those kinds of environmental activism and environmental NGOs that have been co-opted by the state, they have been, um, spaces have been limited. And this is why we still see that there's very limited interest articulation and aggregation, but also awareness when we're when talking about climate change or environmental degradation. Um, because much has been controlled by the state, by state-sponsored um, and affiliated media that trying to, to, to present the leadership and their environmental politics in a, in a, in a very specific way. So the states then, uh, you, you talk about how they, um, they really try and rebrand themselves and to really 
kind of carve out a leading position uh, presenting themselves as leaders in sustainable development and 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 the like. And a lot of people, in, including you, I believe, in the past, called saw this as greenwashing, right? As as just like uh, just public relations, just image management. But in the book, you actually say, say there, there's a lot more going on there than just greenwashing. Yeah, I'm so. In the beginning, I would definitely say that I also was an advocate of labeling this process greenwashing. But in the meantime, I, I changed my opinion on this regard because I do see that they are putting so much effort into it and so much investments. And there is a there is a perception that they have to change. So they they have to alter their, their previous model, which is not sustainable. They are knowing about the physical effects of climate change but they want to do this in their own way and their own style and this is this is what sometimes looks a little bit ambiguous for us um but and and of course i mean and here it comes into play what i have uh previously said about the the close connection between environmentalism and political power they are they are also in instrumentalizing and using this kind of new green advocacy. Um, so we have specific projects or initiatives that um, where it is claimed that this has been the first of its kind. So um, this is then also very closely linked to a certain ruler and gaining personal legitimation from it. Um, and to, to presenting or indicating this kind of wisdom of leaderships that they are really here at the forefront of turning green and um, that they are, well, doing really something. But this all is related then to kind of a specific performance or what political scientists would call output legitimacy. We do not see a huge or stronger um, role of input legitimacy, because as I, as we just said, um, civil society doesn't play a huge role here. It is mostly specifically connected to political and economic elites that are benefiting who are benefiting from from this transformation. And that that's actually a, a good transition to uh, talking maybe about I think one of the most interesting parts of the book, which is the way that this move into these green energy technologies and and uh, and these new energy sectors that is actually having some really dramatic uh, effects on domestic political economies. Uh, you talk about the uh, the green energy fiefdoms um, that have emerged. And so let's talk us through that a little bit and kind of what you saw in terms of the transformative effect on the kind of the on on industry and society. In, in my perspective and how I, I have uh, analyzed these things, um, it really gave the picture that this this policy field of environmentalism have has been used for nurturing specific um constituencies and this is why um different rulers have built up their own fiefdoms they have then put specific loyal persons on top of those fiefdoms um but in the end they have been not really effective um so we have a number of different fiefdoms everyone works for its own uh, they are not really there's no way of of knowledge sharing or cooperation or coordination between those different fiefdoms um because it's it's just a network of power relations here that, that has been built up, so they haven't been really effective here. Um, and this is this is how 
and and I'm just speaking about one policy field here, but I think that this relates to to a number of policy making issues when talking about the Gulf states. Um, especially evident is this case in Saudi Arabia, and very interesting when looking. Um, between the rulership of King Abdullah and the and now King Salman, so um, how they have built their own constituencies and how they are have built up yeah their their own supporting circles, um, building their own fiefdoms, marginalizing old fiefdoms that have been built up um, under the the reign of King Abdullah. So there there are a lot of dynamics here. And then but specific kinds of investments then flow to certain, you know, they flow through those networks. And uh, so some people get quite quite rich off of this. Yeah. Th and this is where uh, th the private sector also comes into play. Um, it's not only about a state organization here. It's, uh, it's a very close entanglement between the public and private sector. Um, something I, I think I have called it adaptive uh, state capitalism in the book, where we see some elements of a modern liberal economy um, in, a, in a globalized world. But we also see aspects of a traditional state capitalist model where the rulership have and they are ensuring to remain control over the private sector as also a means of political inclusion and a centralization of capital accumulation. Um, so giving just a few examples, um, when, when building the biggest solar plant, then you are uh, cooperating maybe with, uh, you have international investors, you have uh, uh, local companies that are, well, either controlled by members of the ruling family or by, well, important economic elites from the old merchant elites, um, for example, merchant families, for example. Um, and then you you also see that those investments are not always coming from, from abroad, but also domestically, where you have those fiefdoms then acting and investing and operation uh, operating those those plans so there there's a huge entanglement um and and linkages between the public and private sector which uh, also indicates that we cannot speak here about a, a kind of so in literature there is sometimes the discussion about a, a energy democracy by having renewable energy which is decentralized which is distributed because everyone is able to put their own solar panel on the roofs um we do not see this approach in the gulf states so with the small exception of dubai where where we have um well more installed and distributed solar planet uh, panels but in general we have this this big project uh this big projects um utility projects which are uh, controlled by the state or state affiliated institution where which has been built by by another loyal mm. company uh, loyal to to the ruling family so th this is also a very different approach to to what we can see in terms of energy transition in other places of the world no that's really interesting um where you know following up on that where did like the big showcase projects fit into this vision the mastar and the neom and and projects like that i think that they all share similarities in terms of they are building this this um 
yeah, big projects that is closely related then to, to a certain ruler. So master has been the one of the earliest things um, closely connected to uh, uh, Mohammed bin uh, Mohammed bin Zaid um, and the the investment uh, corporation Mubadala, which is controlled by them. So they are putting a lot of investments into this to make this the national champion here. And then we have not only this this carbon free city, which in the end fails all of the expectations by being not really carbon free, but it also there's also a company it's, it's called master power and master power is then the national champion of implementing or in building most of those solar wind and energy project projects in the country but also abroad um so it's an investment vehicle that also aligned with the national aspirations for becoming greener but it's completely state controlled and this is something um we, which we can also see uh for for neom or for other projects here it's it's closely connected to to a specific ruler and a person um gaining personal legitimation it's it's it it, it has kind of specific support supporting circle by by economic political elites um, and they are taking care of it. And usually we have this, this headline grabbing announcements that are falling behind this initial expectations. Um, and another dimension is that those are also hubs where international investors or other countries um, trying to be involved as well. So we, we have here a kind of um, uh, a city or a site where those leaders are also trying to use them for more international linkages to different countries and actors. I think uh, the one example that jumped out at me was uh, the UAE launching a, a campaign to plant a million trees and then they all died. Yeah, and this happened 20 years ago. And now we have a, a similar uh, initiative by the Saudis where it's not really clear um, how this will be implemented, but we 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 heard it all over the play um, in all headlines and all across newspapers. But it it's like, yeah, we have this one approach. In this case, it's not a technical approach to decarbonization, but a rather natural based solution. Um, but it's it's a very minor focus on decarbonization and, and to control the emissions, which not really tackles fundamental other things like is this feasible uh what we are going to do with all the water water resources um and the water requirements and uh, uh yeah other other aspects like um is this a feasible approach in in such an environment it's it's like it it always has this mantra of being better and um bigger than anything else before now you you look at the at the, the political economy and the the local power implications for each of the Gulf states, but you also look at this in uh, in an international and regional way, and talk a little bit about what what you saw in terms of both cooperation among the GCC states, but also competition among these states. It's uh, I think it's one uh, the last empirical chapter where I'm trying to to look outside the nation state and really engage with the regional and international power dynamics in this field of environmental sustainability. 
Um, and here, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look at different aspects. So um, one, one is definitely uh, that we can see a changing pattern of climate diplomacy. So this has become a key pillar of exerting power outside the national boundaries. Um, and there are enough examples uh, how those countries are now presenting them, themselves at the COP. Um, next year, the COP will be in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, we have Saudi Arabia as a very powerful player in terms of climate diplomacy. It always had been a very important player, but it has always tried also to, to hamper the negotiation pro, uh, projects and developments. And now we can see that they are not really having this obstructionistic point of view, but they are dominating the scene and trying to impose their, their specific model here. So climate diplomacy is very important. Um, we can also see that there is this, this kind of green branding, what we have just talked about. So having this, this ambitious projects um, and, and green, green cutting edge projects nationally, they are also presented to the outside world. Um, and a perfect example would be the FIFA World Cup right now in Qatar, where uh, it has been stated in the beginning that this will be the first green uh, soccer game and tournament in the world. And so, again, we had a lot of good ideas and a lot of good ambitions in the beginning. But when we are looking now on what has really happened, then we can see that they have, uh, well, fell short of any any of their initial pledges and announcements. But speaking, it's of, still, speaking it, of the World Cup, it, it, it was actually quite fascinating uh, uh, that Qatar actually hosted one one of the first uh, one of the early COP conferences at a time when it didn't even have its own uh, energy or environmental policy. And um, the, the similarities in the international criticism and the policy change that followed was really quite resonant. Absolutely. Um, yeah, as you said, Qatar, Qatar hosted the climate summit 10 years ago, and then they were facing huge criticism by why, why we can have this, this COP in the, in the country with the biggest ecological footprint per capita. Um, so, and it, it, it kind of really, uh, well, forced Qatar to, to, to act and they came up with a new plan and really tried to, to be authentic and mm -hmm. um, in terms of climate change and being now the green leader here and pioneering uh, things. But this was rather short-lived. Um, and we, we can see that Qatar has not really um, continued this path. So it, it all went forgotten and then um, we can see that uh, this this happened uh, now during the FIFA World Cup again. Um, so if they had stick to their original plan, they would have been it would have been yeah a much more authentic way as to 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 host the World Cup here and to to have Qatar here as 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 a really as a green leader that is really ambitious about. Um, uh, climate change and environmental degradation but you you see that this this is there where the notion of green branding um happens so it's it's a little bit superficial here from time to time this doesn't mean it's greenwashing because we have those investments and we have 
Um, I, I really think that some of those leaders are really thinking that they are doing the right thing. But then we are talking about bureaucracy and we're talking about um, a very difficult system where our policymaking is complicated and diverse and where not everyone is 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 having or is heading in the right and the same direction. Um, so so this this is this is um yeah still still yeah. a very huge problem. Well maybe maybe to to wrap up, maybe let's go back to where we started, which is that you know the there's the diplomacy side and there's the domestic power side um but then there's also just the reality of the of the intensity and the magnitude of these environmental impacts that that we're, that we're seeing and um what, one of the things you mentioned in your in your conclusion is that the the because of the distinctive connections between environmental policy energy policy and and kind of regime legitimacy you're seeing a lot of action on the, as you put it, on the supply side, but not on the demand side. Yeah. Um, so, and, and this relates also to to one of my main arguments that we can here speak rather about a an approach of uh, that can be labeled a weak or soft sustainability. Um, so it it means that we are tackling the climate crisis from this energy economic perspective on gaining, maintaining welfare and prosperity where technology and innovation plays a huge role. Um, and those states, are, they are not considering the climate change as a, not as a crisis, but rather as a challenge that can be solved by technology or technological fixes. So we can really fix the environment um, and uh, and this might then even open new business opportunities. So this is their approach. But what what's lacking is this fact of um, that that we have this this um, uh, focus on carbon emissions um, that becomes the measure of all things. We are we are other things, biodiversity, other resources, water, uh, pollution. Those are really not things we are discussing here so much, and um, we we are also lacking a truly sustainable or or development towards a truly sustainable society where also wider questions of social needs and welfare um, and economic opportunities are related and limited to and imposed by these supporting ecosystems. So what I mean is that we need to, to acknowledge that we are we have finite resources and these kind of ecosystems imposing a certain lifestyle. So we cannot maintain our lifestyle as before and we have to dramatically change this. But this is something we do not find in the Gulf states. So they have been there have been measures to cut subsidies, but only in a gradual way that this not really touches um, the social contract of political power and state society relations and is not leading to a crisis of legitimacy. Um, and we are not talking about providing more knowledge about climate change and and an economic crisis, uh, environmental crisis here to the the different to to the broader public. Um, we are also not really talking about aspects of environmental and climate justice. So those are all things that are really absent in the specific model and development and vision when it comes to to environmentalism by the Gulf states. 
Oh, it's really interesting. Uh, we've been speaking to Tobias Zumbrego about his book, Political Power and Environmental Sustainability in the Gulf Monarchies. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. Women's activism is in the news these days as we're all watching Iran and watching Iranian women uh, challenge their regime. And uh, I wanted to talk with uh, one of our one of my favorite experts on women's activism in the Middle East, uh, Nermeen Alam of uh, Rutgers University. She's the author of the recent book, Women in the Egyptian Revolution, and she's been doing a project on the long-term effects of uh, participation in, in protests on women. And Nermeen, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Mark. So let's talk about uh, you know some of your work and um, the and the ways in which women participated in the Egyptian Revolution and what it meant to them. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for the for the question. So, women uh, participation when we think and um, when we imagine how. Uh, women participated in the uprising. One way to think and to assess the, the role and the consequences of women's participation in the uprising is to look at the changes in formal politics, to look at the changes in institutions and, and in the movement. And when you look at these institutional policy changes, you will see that similar to other reform groups, women groups participated in ousting the Mubarak regime in 2011 uh, during the transitional period. They exposed the atrocities committed by the army against protesters. And then during the Muslim Brotherhood rule, uh, they documented and exposed the Brotherhood blunt attack on the agenda of women's rights. Um, and they did so through direct street actions, uh, through participation in writing the constitutions, uh, through preparing and training women to run for elections and to participate in formal politics. And the end result now, notwithstanding the disappointments, uh, the many disappointments of the resolution, but the end result now is that you see more women in the parliament, you see more women in government position, which is the outcome of women's action and activism, but also it's a reflection of the uh, regime's agenda. Uh, another important and significant aspect of women's participation in the 2011 uprising is the wrenching emotional encounter with gender-based violence. So during and following the uprising, the regimes in power, the regimes with an S in power, they targeted women protesters through the use of sexual violence, and, and they did so to exclude women from the public space and from the political landscape. Through women's participation and collective action, Participants, however, rendered questions surrounding women's bodily rights that were traditionally held to be um, private. They, they rendered it um, public and political in the aftermath of the uprising. And thus, in 2014, you see Egypt passing for the first time an anti-harassment law. And for the first time in Egypt, you have a national machinery to address and to report the issue. And no regime is going to come out and say, uh, yes, I responded to the shouting protesters or activists, right? But at the heart of these reforms is women activism. We cannot simply divorce these reforms from women's activism, exposing violence against the regime. 
and 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 finally another point and a less highlighted point when you look at women's engagement in uh, the uprising is uh, to understand the role of to understand the role of women's participation and the consequences of their participation. And in order to understand the consequences of their participation, we need to look beyond the political, so to look at the biographical effect, to look at the personal and the cultural effects of um, of uh, of their participation. At the most basic level, their their experience, the experiences of women in uh, the revolution, it, it challenged, and it continued to challenge society's uh, conformity to taking for granted concepts, authorities, and, and life courses, and open them up for debate. Um, we don't always win uh, these debates, but at least we push them into the spotlight. And by doing so, the legacy of women and the role in the, in the uprising uh, continue to live on. One of the things that, uh, that you really talk about is that a lot of the women that you interviewed, they weren't activists before 2011, and a lot of them aren't activists today, and yet you still see profound changes in their in their gendered consciousness and in their attitudes towards feminism and the like. Tell us a little bit about that, about your interviews and how you see these women changing um, over time. Uh, yes, excellent question. So in my in my first book, I offered an oral history of women's participation in in the revolution. And towards the end of my fieldwork, themes of um, despair and disappointment, they became fundamental features of my interviews in 2014 and more intensely in 2017. So participants described their, um, their, their sense of disappointment, their sense of despair, the sense of futility. But however, whenever I asked if that was if that was the end of change and reform, uh, the quickly asserted uh, quote, not yet. So participants in the uprising, whether you look at the participants as activists who had a history of participation in protest and in politics, or whether participants who, um, like what we call them, like non-committed activists, those who just participated in one episode, and then returned home. Um, but they, they often asserted that the experience of collective action, that it has changed them. And that, um, quote, things cannot go back to the, to the old days. Um, however, things in Egypt, um, it seemed worse in comparison to the, to the old days on the political landscape, which leads to the question of what really changed and how change, it leaves it unanswered. And in my new project, I try to show what really changed. So I, I show what changed through looking at the afterlife of women's participation in the 2011 Egyptian uprising. And I show what changed among the different groups. So not just the committed activists, but those who might have participated in a uh, in uh, in one of the episodes, those who participated on one, in one um, key events, and and see the variations of the effect across these uh, across these different groups. Um, specifically, I yeah, please. Well, one of the one of those, which is the in many ways the most interesting, given what we're seeing today in Iran, is the subject of your your brand new article in Politics and Gender, 
where you see these women spontaneously uh, removing their hijab. And uh, and that's let's talk about that a little bit in terms of what that meant to the women who were doing this. Well, historically and to the present day, different regimes in the region have used women and their bodies to demarcate projects of modernization, nationalism, and later Islamization. And, and feminists studying body politics in the Middle East, they look at these attempts, right? And they show us how modesty politics have been central in defining the character of the state and the character of the society and the relations between them. And, and by modesty politics, um, the reference here is, is to the regulations around women bodies, around gender roles, and the dominant norms of femininity and masculinity in societies. You have, you have, you have a really nice phrase there, gendered moral accountability structures. It's very evocative. Yes. It really captures what you're talking about. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you did, uh, you did notice it. Well, it, you know, it, it really captures how these regulations, how they outline a cross-cutting web of not just religious, right, but there's also extra-religious meanings that are embedded mm -hmm. within them. And these meanings are not static. They are situated within shifting relations of power as well as resistance that change across different contexts and at key historical junctures. So for example, the, the, the arrest and the death of the 22 uh, years uh, old woman in Iran, Mahsa, for transgressing the regime's uh, gender morality norms, it drew further attention to the multi-layers of inequalities and hierarchies that characterize the rule of the character regime and the character of conventional and contentious politics in the, in the region. So women joined and women uh, in, in, in almost a spontaneous act joined because you cannot really divorce the personal from the political when looking at women's decision and modesty practices, such as the veil in the Middle East. Uh, but we should rather aim to understand their diverse, sometimes entangled effects on uh, one another. The personal does not exi exist in a void, and our personal decisions, they are not free floaters, right? They are influenced by and have influence on various social and political structures. And, and thus, it's not surprising that you see this spontaneous act of uh, taking of the veil among activists, non-activists by standards, um, because again, like the, the, the hijab in itself, it does have personal political significance. And, what, what, and, and these meanings can coexist together, but under certain circumstances, some meanings become more prominent. And thus, you see actions corresponding to the prominence and significance of uh, this meaning. And part of that, at least in the Egyptian context, is a response to the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood to power and Salafi parties and the like. So that's certainly part of the context. Uh, yes, excellent question. And, and the answer to it, it, it really requires almost layers of answers, mm -hmm. right? So it is true that among the pathways that came up during my interviews in the context of Egypt was that taking off the hijab was uh, almost an innovation in the repertoire of contention 
and um, the framing of unveiling um, was um, was a, was a response to the experience of political Islam, that the experience of political Islam in Egypt, that it has contributed to framing, unveiling as a contentious repertoire against Islamist politics. And one of the common themes among the interviewees was how the frame taking of the veil as a symbol for defying Islamist politics and their gendered rhetoric. So for example, uh, one participant described how you know she did not put on the hijab because of the Muslim Brotherhood, but that she took it off because of its uh, because of their politics. Um, another interviewee explained the effects of uh, their politics by emphasizing how women felt uh, compelled to distance themselves from the Muslim Brotherhood ideologies, given the group's attack on the agenda of women's rights. And then in the same line, you have other interviewee emphasizing how formal uh, politics um, quote how it exposed the corruption of islamist political groups and thus people felt that they, they wanted to distance themselves from them and from whatever symbol they embrace and these statements they kind of converged with the findings of the Arab parameter the 2018 uh, wave where they described a decline in the trust and in the popularity of Islamist political um, leaders. But, but, but their data do not explain the why the period post the uprising, why in the period post the uprising, the hijab suggested tolerance, why it suggested even for some uh, conformity to Islamist political parties and their ideologies towards women and gender equality. And I find, I find this kind of new meaning inscribed to the act of unveiling. And the interviewees uh, suggested association between the hijab and Islamist politics. Uh, I find it interesting in the context of Egypt for two reasons, right? So first, uh, this meaning, the hijab has never been compulsory in Egypt. And, and this meaning, the, the association between the hijab and the Muslim Brotherhood in, in, the, in the current time, it didn't necessarily travel to the Muslim diaspora where the hijab is still largely an identity marker, but it's not necessarily a Muslim Brotherhood identity marker. And, and second, all my interviewees, except for one, they often deny that their decision to wear the hijab was directly influenced by the Muslim Brotherhood. And of course, directly, we should put it in quotation because we know the subtle ways in which the Muslim Brotherhood affected society in Egypt. And I explained this, this, this tension in my interviewees new reading of hijab and the political motivation underpinning their decision to take it off in terms of how religious symbols are fluid right they can be interpreted again in a variety of different and shifting ways and each interpretation is encoded by different again not only religious but also for some political and gender these meanings, they can coexist together like they did prior to the uprising, but under certain circumstances, some meanings become more prominent and they overshadow the others. So while the veil, the hijab, continued to signify different meanings and sentiments after the uprising, taking it off became a, a definite sign of rejecting Islamist politics. So it's not the presence of hijab right. as much right. as it's absence that came to signify rejection of Muslim Brotherhood and Salafi style of uh, Islam, Islamism in Egypt. 
Now, when when we look at uh, Iran right now, one of the things we see is, um, you know, kind of really quite shocking uh, violence, uh, regime, state violence uh, against these women as they unveil. And in your research, uh, that's a, on Egypt, that seems to be a key moment in this changing consciousness and these changing biographies, the experience with gender-based violence, whether from the regime or from these, these harassment mobs that you describe. Tell us a little bit, tell us more about this, like in more detail and uh, kind of the way that these women experience violence and how it changed their their, their attitudes and, and, and their beliefs. Yes, I mean, the, the period um, during the uprising and, and post the uprising, there has been, as we have been following, uh, there was a rise in the intensity, the, the, the frequency, the, the scope of sexual uh, violence and sexual harassment and gender-based violence against, against women. And I refer in the article to this is that women witnessed a shifting political opportunities. And specifically this uh, shifting political opportunity structure, there was two important points that that characterized it and that led to a response of taking off um, the hijab. The first is that you had difference. So on one hand, you have these attacks going, people seeing the attacks, the intensity, the frequency of the attacks are escalating. And on the other hand, you had different regimes and political actors um, violently targeting women to curtail their participation. Again, this was not just the actions of groups, even the military targeted women. Um, um, you would remember the, the famous, the, the girl in the, the blue bra um, and the, the virginity tests. Mm -hmm. So there was an escalation by not just groups in the streets, but by political actors and by different regimes. The second point is that in justifying their violence against female protesters, they relied on gendered morality and modesty discourses. So traditional gender morality and modesty discourses that blamed women for the attacks, blamed women for the rising sexual assaults, that criticized women's presence in the public space, and that started questioning what they were or what they were not wearing. And I argue in the article is that I argue that by invoking these traditional morality and modesty discourses that blame women for the rise in uh, sexual assaults by invoking them to justify the repression of women's protesters, they contributed to opening them up for debate. Hmm. Where women started to question some of their structures and practices, including the veil. So the veil was viewed by some at this period as aligned with the gendered moral accountability structure imposed by SCAF, imposed by the Islamist political parties on women protesters. And thus taking it off communicated a rejection of the gendered rhetoric and an assertion, an assertion of women's bodily rights. So for example, um, in a number of, uh, in a number of uh, interviewees, uh, the interviewees, sorry, in a number of interviews, the, inter the interviewees explained how violence by state and non-state acted against women protesters how it brought to the front questions related to women's bodily rights and its place in morality discourses. And as, as one interviewee um, eloquently uh, described or captured it, it exposed the contradictions in the morality discourse in society. 
Because you had the same society that asked her to cover up, it blamed her when she got assaulted, right? And and these experiences, the experiences of Egyptian women, I think it encourages also to expand our view of you know what constitute an, an opportunity and, and mm-hmm. what and how why political opportunities suggest usually that you have a defection among elites as a source of opportunities for protesters. In the case of women protesting in Egypt, um, when elites converged in their gender discourses, that pushed women to challenge them both and to expose and to reject uh, their gendered moral rhetoric. So one of the really interesting things then, which follows from this, this wave of harassment, especially from the street harassment, is the emergence of these groups and organizations that try and protect women and uh, you know the anti-harassment uh, operations. I've just been reading this little new book by Yasmin Rafai uh, describing the emergence of the an organization of these groups. Um, and you talk about these in your book and in, in your articles as well. Tell us more about that and kind of the kinds of organizations and, and kind of responses that we see emerging spontaneously um, by women and, and by male supporters of women's uh, participation. Uh, yes, so as it responds to the rise, well, prior to the uprising, the issue of sexual harassment, it's not new in Egypt. So you had organizations working on um, challenging the legal framework, pushing for legal reforms. And then during the uprising, and as the issue become um, more visible, it, again, there was an increase in the in the, in the frequency and in the intensity, um, you had new organizations and new initiatives and groups coming um, coming out and um, trying to, and they have different, there was various forms in which they tried to intervene. So some of the work was on the ground, so intervening in mob assaults and trying to protect the uh, survivor, the victim slash survivor, um, others focused on um, spreading awareness and encouraging uh, people to uh, report harassment. Um, other forms of their work was uh, to push for legal changes and to uh, document the uh, document the document the attacks mm-hmm. in a way to um, present them as you know, data for the regime that there is a problem that we cannot ignore, right? Um, and some of these organizations, of course, the, the, the kind of work overlapped. Um, many of them was, they were very decentralized in their character. And thus what happens following the, uh, the coup in Egypt is that many of these activism and many of these groups, they cease to exist. Uh, but the work is there, right? So the work that documents the harassment, the work that documents the assaults is there. Uh, and I think this was this is exceptionally important to have this work that documents the assaults and documents the attack as a way to continue to push for legal reforms and legal changes in Egypt. And you do end up with um, legal, and you, and you did end up with uh, some legal reforms. So for the first time in 2014, you had the anti-harassment law, again, you had the national missionary and of course, while the state comes out and co-opt these um, these these reforms, and even that they view them as like grants, we we give you some something. So now we don't need the women's movement anymore. We don't need the feminist organization anymore because we we solved it. 
but it, it doesn't it doesn't stop here, right? You recently see that there are new groups who are not necessarily um, who did not necessarily they are young groups did not necessarily participate in the uprising, but they are continuing to challenge and continuing to push for respect in women's bodily rights, and framing the issue as this is. This is political. It's a political issue that needs the state to intervene and needs the state to take action. And some of the vocabulary, and this is where, again, the, the, the consequences of movements are, and, and the target of women's actions are, the target and the consequences are broad, right? Um, you see how some of the vocabulary of the earlier movement, of the earlier organizations, you see them figured in the new groups, even though that they did not participate. But once you throw an idea there in the society, um, it has a life on its own. And I think the encounters with gender-based violence, encounters with sexual violence during the uprising and women's activism around these issues, it threw the idea of women's body rights there. And now the, the society cannot ignore it and the regime, even though that the regime co-opt the reforms, but even the regime cannot ignore it. And they're, they're almost kind of playing a catch-up game. They're trying to catch up to the changes that are taking um, taking place among uh, the societies, among the society and, and among um, and the changes that the groups are pushing um, in society. Well, great. Thanks. We've been speaking with Nermeen Alam of Rutgers University about uh, her research on women's participation in the Egyptian revolution. Nermeen, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Of course. Thank you so much, Mark, for inviting me. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and this week we pick up our series of conversations with authors uh, of chapters of our volume, The Political Science of the Middle East, Theory and Research Since the Arab Uprisings. Today, we talk to Stefan Hertog at the London School of Economics. He's the author, along with Ferdinand Eibel and Shima Hattab, of Chapter 6, Political Economy and Development. Uh, Stefan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. So tell us about this chapter and um, this, this sweeping overview of the field. Um, tell us about political economy and development. Uh, sure. Yeah. So it uh, it wasn't an easy chapter to write because of uh, the amount of material to condense into 9,000 words uh, and the amount of, of literature to look at. Uh, it was uh, intellectually interesting to write in a sense that we realized that the Middle East had been uh, a source for major comparative political economy theorizing all the way to sort of the 1980s, and then a lot of that stopped. So that was a puzzle in its own right. A lot of the big theories of development, uh, both political development and economic development, came out of the region modernization theory, uh, later on writing about uh, clientelism and patronage, patron-client relations, and after that, rentier state theory came out of the region up until the 1980s, and then it kind of stopped. Uh, there, there weren't many kind of big ideas coming from there anymore. And in, in an interesting way, that kind of mirrored the economic trajectory, the, the actual development trajectory of the region, in the sense that uh, it was actually a high growth region uh, up until roughly sort of the, the mid to late 1970s, was a very ambitious region in terms of state building, in terms of industrialization, state-led development. Uh, and then things kind of fell apart and the wheels came off in uh, the depending on which country you're talking about, between the, the early 70s and the early 80s. And uh, it's things have never quite come together again since then. So that, that was sort of 
one of the broad kind of cross-cutting insights that I guess we realized when we were writing that. And we, we had a number of individual themes that mm -hmm. uh, sort of emerged against that background. And, and one thing which is interesting, and it's a theme that runs through many of the chapters of the volume, is this kind of sense that history matters and that there are these long-term institutional histories and trajectories that we have to understand when we look at modern political developments. Yes, yes, very much so. And uh, there are, I guess, two different ways of uh, going about kind of history matters, long-term legacies research. Uh, and one which is covered in the first section of the chapter is the very, very long-run research, where there are uh, authors like uh, Timo Kuran or, uh, or Jared Rubin who look at legacies that go back a thousand years or longer, you know, all the way to the Islamic conquest of the region or the formation of early Islamic legal systems, and, and then make a claim that uh, some of those institutions, even while in some cases they might have been developmental at the time in sort of the uh, Islamic Middle Ages, they've now come to, to hamper economic development. Uh, and this is probably one of the few kind of big arguments that have emerged out of the region after this early phase of theory building that I mentioned. But it's also a, a very disputed type of theorizing because right. some, some people see it as essentialist or orientalist or empirically very thin. You know, how do you prove that legal institutions that were created 1300 years ago really still impact political development nowadays? So, so that's, that's one of the kind of still very much open debates that we review in the chapter. And then there's a second way of historical theorizing, which is a little bit less ambitious, uh, which looks mostly at post-colonial or post-Second World War uh, institutional legacies. And I think there's much more consensus that these definitely matter, you know, how regimes were formed, how early social coalitions were shaped when you know, the old monarchs were thrown over or when uh, the colonial power was, was thrown out uh, through, through a, a war of independence in the case of Algeria. So I think it's much clearer that those kind of early critical junctures matter a lot and still, still are reflected in the way that states operate, that they, uh, that they relate to their societies, that they relate to business in very different ways across the region. And then, of course, one of the one of the more recent critical junctures is this shift towards neoliberalism and uh, the role of the IMF and World Bank and just the broader impact of globalization. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's, again, quite contentious literature about that. I would say that sort of a majority of the literature that we also review in the chapter is very critical of what the IFIs have done and uh, views a lot of the development problems of the region in terms of inequality, corruption, low growth, as a result of misguided liberalization policies since uh, so at least the late 1970s. Uh, but there's also a smaller strand of literature that says that while a lot went wrong with liberalization, some of the things that don't function in the region, some of the corruption, some of the inequality is actually caused by vestiges of very, very deep state intervention. That's just very unequal in the sense that you know, state protection still exists but it only exists for certain smaller insider coalitions. So the issue is less that there's been too much or too little liberalization, but that there's been excessive liberalization for some and there's still excessive protection for others. So it's the very uneven protection that the state affords, both within uh, the business class in terms of you know, having some insider crony firms that are very well protected, but then also having informal outsider firms that are completely unprotected and exposed to the raw uh, forces of the market uh, and the same on the labor market, where you still have an insider constituencies of a significant number of fairly well-protected state employees that in many cases, by the admittedly low standards of the region, are still relatively well-paid and enjoy good social security on the one hand, uh, which is a constituency that's larger in the Arab world than in most other 
low to mid-income countries. And on the other hand, you have a large informal labor force uh, for which there's almost no social protection, less than even in Latin America or significant parts of South Asia. Uh, so it might not be too much or too little state. It might just be a very, very uneven uh, presence of the state and a very uneven liberalization process. And one of the things which is interesting in the chapter is the extent to which uh, the the study of crony capitalism is actually a place where the Middle East has actually really kind of taken on issues that are of interest broadly to the political economy literature. Yes, ve very much so. And the crony capitalist idea wasn't developed in the region. It came uh, into being in studies mostly of uh, Southeast Asia and East Asia. Uh, but then in terms of the empirical refinement and conceptual refinement, of that uh, of that uh, concept, uh, Middle East studies has been very very productive, and there's been a lot of very good work done the last ten years, roughly, both by political scientists and critically economists on new data sets that became available after the Arab Spring, uh, and I think it's probably the only region where, for almost each major market, we have sort of a data set of who are politically connected firms, which firms are not politically connected. And uh, people have done very interesting work on the very significant economic consequences of cronyism, which in the Middle, uh, Middle East cases are very strongly negative. So you have huge effects, like an estimate that, for example, uh, employment could be 25% higher in some countries in the absence of crony capitalism. So it's not the kind of minuscule type of modern uh, empirical political science research where you look for tiny effects that are very well causally identified, but it's actually pretty big stuff that those authors have addressed with with pretty good empirical methods. So that's, although it's not sort of conceptually groundbreaking in a global sense, uh, I think in terms of what it tells us on the details and the ways we can measure crony capitalism, it's been it's been a big contribution beyond the region. Now, switching over to another like big area within the political economy literature, you do have the focus on clientelism and uh, kind of distributive politics. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, so the, the region, uh, especially the uh, Arab countries and particularly the republics, stand out historically in the ambition they've had to distribute wealth and to create a new middle class in uh, so the age of early post-independence and Arab nationalism. Uh, and that was an agenda that initially was quite successful. If you look at uh, the levels of social mobility that you had across much of the Arab world, specifically the, the republican regimes in the 50s and 60s, the growth rates that were accomplished, you know, the, the very fast growth of a new middle class that seemed like a quite successful project. You know, very fast uh, increases in school enrollment, uh, very fast increases in life expectancy through public health provision. Uh, but then the whole thing came kind of to a halt, uh, starting in the late 60s and even more so in the 70s and 80s, because uh, as many authors at least think, those states kind of overcommitted. They tried to build expansive modern welfare states without really having the resources and the economic backbone uh, to, to maintain that kind of system. So something that uh, David Waltner's called precocious Keynesianism. So sort of Keynesian demand management, heavy state stimulus without actually having the economic depth and resources to maintain that in the long run. But again, the, the uh, legacies of that kind of age of distribution are still with us. You know, those states on paper are still very ambitious in terms of wanting to provide uh, universal education up to a tertiary level uh, in terms of the kind of healthcare and, and welfare guarantees they have on paper, but which they often can't really deliver on because of resource constraints and because of weak bureaucracies and, and issues with corruption. 
Well, why don't we switch now to the big elephant in the room, the uh, the the Rentier State question and uh, the impact of oil. Yeah, so Rontier state theory, uh, the theory that uh, oil-rich states have a particular type of politics, specifically that they can sort of buy off political dissent or pacify their populations through the distribution of rents through various welfare and employment channels, and thereby maintain a kind of soft authoritarianism. That was sort of the last really big theory, I think, that emerged out of the MENA region in the, the, the 70s and 1980s. Uh, and it's a theory that's been uh, attacked a lot in uh, area studies and comparative political economy literature, but that I think has survived the test of time reasonably well. So at least I would argue in the in, in that section of the chapter that, that I was involved in, that if you look at how GCC politics functions, so the politics of, of the Gulf oil monarchies, Brontier state theory captures politics there pretty well, you know, with the exception of Bahrain, uh, there's not a lot of unruly politics. You know, the authoritarianism is very much patronage based. Uh, and that patient is, is also very, very durable over time, both the expectations of citizens to be taken care of, uh, but also the willingness of, of citizens to uh, kind of not mobilize against the regime and to, to have almost a certain type of, uh, certain kind of gratefulness vis-a-vis -vis their regimes. I think that, that captures certainly not, not everything that's going on within the region and that doesn't capture a lot of the cross-case variation in the Gulf. But sort of as a first cut, it's a pretty good description of politics in that region ever since uh, the, the onset of the oil age in, in the 60s. And in and your own work, of course, you've shown you know, real variations in how states have adapted. And uh, sometimes you do see these vast inefficiencies and sometimes you don't. Yeah, it's true that uh, oil wealth always interacts with leadership decisions at critical junctures, especially when uh, ruling elites first get access to oil wealth. They have a lot of autonomy in how they use it. And certainly Saddam used it very differently from how uh, King Faisal in Saudi Arabia used it and built a very different type of regime and a very uh, different uh, type of state apparatus. Um, also, the, the level of development uh, at the point when you first get oil is, is critical. All the GCC countries were institutionally, economically very, very underdeveloped. And that, again, gave those regimes uh, more autonomy in you know, shaping a new state apparatus, kind of creating a, a modern state almost ex nihilo, whereas other countries had uh, much heavier, much uh, stronger institutional legacies, both positive and negative. And then, you know, personality plays a big role. If, if you give someone a lot of money with very few constraints, uh, then that is really a moment when th their personal uh, interests, their personal uh, alliances, their personal whims shine through. And I think you see that in the way that different uh, state apparatus in the Gulf have been have been shaped by personalities, and you see it nowadays in places like Saudi Arabia, where you know Mohammed bin Salman, especially in the context of this renewed oil boom that we have now, has a level of autonomy to experiment with institutions and economic policies on a level that practically no other ruler in the world can. Well, maybe one last question, and maybe you know, you know, extending the findings of this chapter outwards is. You know, looking towards a post-oil, post-Rentier future, we know that um, the Gulf states are thinking quite seriously about this. And what, what do the insights of the chapter tell us about uh, what we might expect? So on the one hand, uh, the Gulf rulers have been fairly good at building solid institutions. So that goes kind of against the broader theory of the resource curse, which is actually not something that came out of the Middle East, but more out of the study of specifically sub-Saharan African oil-rich countries that have a particularly bad trajectory, particularly bad economic development, human development, and corruption outcomes. Uh, and the Gulf has kind of managed to avoid that. 
I mean, it's not necessarily sort of a, a Prussia in the desert. You know, they're not as well run as, as uh, Norway or Singapore, but certainly by the standards of the global south more broadly or the Middle East more specifically, uh, those governments are reasonably efficient. They, they've got fairly good institutional capacity. Uh, so they do have uh, the ability to provide a better regulatory framework, better infrastructure for economic development than many other oil-rich countries in the global south. But on the other hand, uh, the rentier state kind of patronage structures that I described a bit earlier, the fact that so many nationals are employed in the state apparatus at very high wages with quite low productivity levels, that so much money gets still distributed through uh, distortionary subsidies, that also puts a break on development. Uh, because under current incentive structures, nationals in the GCC countries, but particularly the richer, smaller GCC countries, don't necessarily have strong incentives to seek really cutting edge skills to really become entrepreneurial. They got very high expectations regarding uh, the wages. Uh, they think they're owed in the private sector. And so life is a bit too comfortable to create sort of a very dynamic entrepreneurial class. The, the, the one sort of model that gets around that is by running your economy on the basis of a very large expatriate migrant and managerial uh, population, which is what the Emirates are doing. But for a country like Saudi Arabia, with more than 20 million citizens, that's not really an option. You can't import, you know, 100 million foreigners to, to run your economy. Well, great. Thank you, Stefan, for, for talking with us about this chapter, Chapter 6 of Political Economy and Development. Mm -hmm.